welcome to the Three Security Buddies podcast. I'm your host, Matthias, um, and here with me are my co-hosts, Paul and Robert. Hey, nice to see you guys again. Good to be here. Hey, guys. So, uh, good to see you again. This is Saturday, so it uh, sounds a little bit weird, but uh, how are you guys doing? Good, thank you. Doing great. So, uh, Robert, what unemployment life feels like? Yeah, it's pretty great. This is my first experience of... Uh... Being unemployed in the U.S. is pretty liberating. Um, found out how much uh, some of the medications I need to take cost without insurance today. That was pretty fun. Feel really free right now. Um, <laughs> we, 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 could looking, potentially, looking... we could potentially do a whole episode ranting about healthcare here, but probably not the right thing to do. Yeah, it's probably a different podcast, but I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. Good. Awesome. So I think we have a little bit of Follow up from the episode that we never published, but uh, it will be a good starter uh, for the conversation. So, Robert, you actually mentioned that, you know, the whole uh, Moxie signal thing could actually have some legal implications. And it came to be true, as usual. You were right. Well, I, I contend that if I throw enough bad ideas out there occasionally, I'll be right. Stop the clock style. Um, but no, I think it's really interesting. I think Paul mentioned that um, the real test of this will be when it actually, you know, will it will it survive first, first contact with a, a cranky judge somewhere, though? Um, I'm not so convinced that it, it will. Good enough. Uh, I actually, uh, I was hearing to uh, Cyber uh, Device uh, podcast, and they also were going about this Moxie thing, and it was very interesting to see uh, the take that they actually had upon it, um, more of like a, a revenge from Celebrite publishing exploits for Signal without actually doing responsible disclosure or sort of like writing a blog post and using them as the accept, you know, the bad example of how, you know, how, how good Celebrite is. So Moxie is sort of going back around this one and saying, hey, this is payback. And if you actually want me to do responsible disclosure, you should do the same with us. So I, I thought that was also an interesting card that we actually didn't even mention. Um, Paul. Oh, so that's interesting. Yeah. So Celebrite was complaining that Moxie didn't follow responsible disclosure. Yes, apparently so. Which, but which their, whole, their whole business model is not following responsible disclosure. Ex exactly. I mean, I sh I sh this whole situation, I think it's a little bit of a soap opera by now, which it's, it's very entertaining. <laughs> So uh, apparently uh, I was listening and they were going something about like, hey, next time if you do responsible disclosure with Signal and, and you play nice with us, we will, you know, do the same thing back at you and this responsible disclose any vulnerabilities that we find, which I'm pretty sure that uh, there might be plenty more. Uh, we were talking about supply chain last time and you guys actually mentioned, you know, something about the, I don't know if I'm actually spelling this one right, but like uh, Hippocrite commits. Uh, so uh, which one of you guys want to get started with this one? I, I actually had to read about it. I'll be honest. I was not aware of it. And I started reading it about it, like how these university guys decided to uh, become temporarily evil uh, for a paper. Uh, this is one of the things that my offensive guy thinks is great, but my uh, responsible person thinks is probably a stupid idea but um you know what do you guys think you want to take this one rob i was waiting for you uh i'm a little bit 
conflicted on this one. I think for the same reason that uh, Matthias pointed out, um, you know, there is prior art for nation states or bodies that operate arms length from nation states attempting to put backdoors in the Linux kernel. There is one that is broadly but unofficially attributed to Huawei, I think from 2003 or 2006. There's a couple of other bits and pieces that are kind of floating around the internet. So like the the attack is viable. And I think a, a, a lot of the community feels betrayed and a lot of the community feels like the way this was approached meant that every commit that came from the University of Minnesota now needs to go and be uh, re-reviewed. And despite the researchers saying, well, they only, you know, I think they only put in a couple is what they're saying. But um, everything's gone back and been re-reviewed and it's caused a lot of churn and a lot of, a lot of challenges within the community. I guess they're doing that because there's no trust with the researchers, right? So just because they say there's two, like, why wouldn't there be part two of the paper that's also like, yeah, you know, we were also able to disrupt or continue to slide things in because, you know, there, there's a, I think it highlights how, to Paul's point from, uh, from the last episode, because there's no robust identity and because there's no real way to trust or to tie trust to a, um, an identity in a real sense. A lot of open source work and contributions really take place on good faith. And while it's true that big projects like the Linux kernel, you have to generally have some presence in the community before you can get commits accepted, at least in very common or, or large parts of the kernel, like big high traffic parts. It's probably also the case that if you're kind of, there must be random drivers and stuff in the kernel that only have two or three, P, two or three people contributing to them. And in those spaces, I imagine you could get commits in fairly trivially. So I think I understand why the, the community is upset. Um, I think it caused a lot of work. It seems like the researchers probably didn't go about it in the right way. I think a lot of the, the challenge that we have with people, com people being upset about this is, is drawing, or a lot of the press that that's getting, is, is kind of drawing away from the fact that this is a pretty viable attack technique, right? Um, we've seen other things with, with uh, supply chain attacks like um, uh, taking over um, abandoned packages, uh, typo squatting in um, package namespaces, the recent thing with um, order of search domains, uh, where you know companies were using internal packages, but the 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 package resolution system would look for the public repos first, so they could find references to internal packages and go create their own external one. I forget the name of that, but it was pretty big press recently. This is just this is another thing that fits in that into that domain, which is just kind of smuggling in, you know, malicious malicious uh, code updates. And I haven't actually seen much discussion of what to do about the problem. The solution to which would help with the third party problem, but also help stop random researchers annoying the whole um, LKML. So I don't know. I think it's complex. I think a lot of attention has gone on to the the upset that it caused within the community. And I haven't actually seen as much discussion of the results and what they were able to achieve as I would have expected. So do you think the results are not discussed because they're obvious? There was so much previous art, not only on the kernel, but in many projects, you know, people in injecting Bitcoin wallets, taking orphan prof, you know, uh, projects. We sort of already give it for granted that 
the reality of the open source world it's based on trust not really on like some cryptographic identity where you you can actually infer commits or or you literally identities trust but verified by multiple commits or others you know I, I don't know i honestly i don't know how to actually will be correctly implemented but where i'm going is this is a paper that was for more or less yes you you prove a point you know i'll applaud you but at the same time it was stating the obvious it's not nothing new, like as you rightly pointed out. Now, do you think that the consequences, um, Paul, of what happened to these people are, are are fair? I mean, do you think the extent that the Linux kernel went to it, it is fair? So I think that there was a lot of very rapid action based on somewhat limited information. Uh, so when Greg Croa Hartman discovered that this had occurred, uh, he went and looked uh, at the author's information at the University of Minnesota and found information that they had done this previous work around these hypocrite commits, which by the way, you spelled it just fine in the show notes. And those like that became whatever conceptual trust that uh, Greg and others had in the the organization as a whole, right? Like I think that you got a very broad hammer used here, partially like broader probably than you would see in many cases, because people expect universities to behave in specific ways. They expect things like institutional like uh, review boards to exist, and when they have this perception that some set of controls have failed both inside their own process and external to them, such that they are the victims, then somewhat vindictive uh, choices get made. So I think that in this particular case, they went very far, very quickly. And I do ultimately think it was probably an overreaction. Like there's, there's a set of things that should absolutely have been done. And I don't actually think I even disagree with proposing the complete revert. Uh, and it's not entirely clear to me that they're going to land any of that in the end. There's been a lot of review. There's been a lot of examination. To Rob's point, there's been a lot of conversation uh, around, hey, look, these look like legitimate patches that are to obscure drivers and things where the maintainer subsystems are not particularly well-defined. Now, obviously, that's also an interesting place to put bugs. But if those drivers are rarely used, then this, this is a lesser value target, et cetera, et cetera. I actually find it more interesting that I think that a lot of what we're talking about for supply chain security here is less interesting for the Linux kernel, which is, I think, very counterintuitive. And I'm open to, to being convinced otherwise. But I think my argument here is that the Linux kernel produces defects at a rate such that there is no need to introduce deliberate backdoors. Like we have immense amounts of data that demonstrate this to be true. So why would you risk anything to introduce a hypocrite commit if you were a genuinely malicious actor? Why bother? Uh, it will be there. there. There's plenty of defects for all. Syscaller is disclosing O-days on a daily basis. Uh, there was some recent research that I, I apologize that I don't remember exactly where I saw it. So also take these numbers with a grain of salt. But I believe it was something like there's roughly a defect density expected of about 2,000 new bugs per kernel release, with some number around that also being fixed. <laughs> the fact of the matter is we know that there are tons of bugs in this software already. 
We know that there are major issues introduced all the time by people who absolutely are not being malicious. Uh, and so what's the advantage? Why bother? I think what you're saying here is, is there's too much exposure. Like you already have plenty of them. So, you know, if you're going to find this here day, you might as well already use something that somebody else made by mistake and just take advantage of it. At the same time, I kind of agree with your point that if you're a state-sponsored attacker, um, it would actually make a lot more sense to try to contain your target. Like either go for, you know, if, if you actually want to go all the way down to the Linux kernel, you probably want to go for some specific module or kernel package that, you know, whatever hardware thing that you're using utilizes, or you will go for an application level thing, but it's going to get you remote code execution anyway, probably has even worse security than than the Linux kernel, or at least I mean, maybe the same security, but it's not, it doesn't have as many ice uh, as the Linux kernel does and probably might, might get detected. But at the same time, if you're good enough, if you can actually swing it and, and get a remote code execution, this is a pretty nice way to get access to almost anything around the world. Uh, it will give you the you know, keys to the kingdom if you actually had a valid remote code execution on somewhat of you know, plenty of Linux version enough that it can get distributed distributed across the world and used worldwide. So if you were able to maintain something like this, you know, secret for five, six years, it would be a, a golden key. And and that I think I assume that for some state points or uh, entities, it actually will be very useful. But at the same time, I think it's highly improbable that that is happening. So I I completely see your point. Anyways, um, have you guys? Read about the Apple AirPod uh, PAI leak, uh, Paul? What is your take so on that? I have not looked super closely at the current research. Uh, and the reason why I haven't looked super closely is that I honestly thought this was a well-known thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, like the nature of the way Apple has chosen to do contact discovery involves hashing. Uh, they broadcast information about like hashes that correspond to what you could consider to be PII. Uh, for yourself. And therefore, because those hashes are not like time hard, memory hard, they're not, they're not done using like a password based key derivation function or anything of that nature. Uh, it becomes quite feasible to brute force and understand potentially who's around you. Um, this is absolutely a, a, a privacy leak. And there, but there are some interesting challenges around like, how do you balance uh, the potential privacy implications alongside the computational and perhaps more importantly for a mobile device, battery implications of doing something different. I can't speak super clearly about exactly what this was, but it's these types of uh, systems always have trade-offs for convenience. Um, and in, But there's clearly also room for improvement. So I'd, I'd be interested in knowing what the two of you have uh, read about this or if you know more. I have heard nothing about it, so I'm going to let the expert here, Bover, talk about it. I actually even thought that when I was going over this and our notes, I I was thinking about like, hey, it doesn't like if you actually mark it as not share with anybody or don't communicate with anybody. I don't remember what is the option in, in macOS that would you still be affected. But again, I'm going to ask the all good, all, you know, the almighty, all knowy British Oracle. Well, I am a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. But um, I think in this case, you, you, can, you can certainly turn it off. You can turn it off entirely. 
that is the this this feature for uh, for airdrop and for matching up contacts. What I think was interesting here was that so the the main article I read was the one on Ars Technica that came out a couple of a couple of days ago. What I thought was interesting about this though wasn't that this issue existed as Paul said like the the mechanism that was chosen was kind of known for a while. And um the the challenge here is basically that um hashes of names and hashes of telephone numbers even more so like the names and the telephone numbers are just fairly low entropy so if you're near someone and you are able to capture this broadcast of these two hashed tokens while reversing the token would be as hard as guessing at any other hash because you know that the the plain text that went into it is actually minimum minimally uh minimally random it shouldn't be too hard to actually guess what they are so if you're near somebody a target of interest um and you you know you capture their data plus a bunch of other people's you can probably get hold of their personal information pretty quickly i think proximity is one of the interesting things here right like that's obviously a mitigating factor compared to most types of attacks we talk about um what i thought was interesting though was the way this came up seemed to be because the researchers that found it were also proposing a specific solution. And that specific solution was using private set intersections, um, which uh, Paul can speak more to, because uh, I often have to defer to Paul to educate me on uh, anything um, involving privacy-based privacy compute or anything in the world of uh, homomorphic encryption, because um, I know these things aren't the same. I know it's adjacent, and like Paul can explain why. But um, I thought it was interesting that it seemed to come up in the light of some soured business arrangement or something, because this had been about two years. And uh, the article seemed to come up as a press release from the researchers. Um, and there was a big point made in the press release about how they proposed a solution to Apple, but Apple refused to take it. And that just seemed odd to me. Um, maybe it's a storm in a teacup, and maybe I'm over-indexing on one hour's technical article. But um, we can't really answer that question. So I guess what I'll throw back is, Paul, you said this was known for a couple of years that the airdrop basically works this way. Um, now that private, private set intersection and similar sort of technologies for coming out at coming out an agreement on numbers without really having to share the the private parts of them, um, why if 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 you were implementing something like this now, you mentioned there were a lot of handset and compute challenges. Like, would it still be too expensive to do sort of private set intersections on on these things? An excellent question, uh, and one where I cannot give you obviously a definitive answer off the top of my head. Um, like, I mean, private set intersection is ultimately a form of secure multi-party computation. Uh, I'm not even sure if there are PSI setups where, and there must be PSI setups where you do not need interactivity. And if that's the case, then you could compute what you're describing uh, asynchronously. It's Probably, if it, and the question, of course, becomes one of like, well, what defines efficient enough? Like, do we need it to happen fast enough that a UI looks responsive? That's a very different question than like, do I need it to occur within two seconds in the background? Uh, yeah. Like, and so, like, 
there are legitimately very hard UI UX questions around tools like AirDrop. And so the answer is maybe you certainly you would use you would you would examine much more modern solutions now. And you might choose to use some of the same solutions, but with some of the style of things they do in the Find My Network, where they do a bunch of uh, rotations and mm. um, a variety of uh, like approaches that are relatively simple, but in aggregate form a very strong system. Um, it is an interesting artifact of the way Apple operates that they have a top tier crypto team, but they also don't tend to revisit solutions that they have completed. Uh, so like a good example of this is iMessage. Uh, iMessage started using 1536-bit RSA keys or possibly 1280-bit. I can't remember actually now. Uh, either way, it's a bit of a strange key size, right? Like it's, it's valid. It's obviously fine to make a key at that size, but it's not the key size that anyone would have chosen. Certainly not now. And also not really when iMessage started, it was absolutely a choice for performance. Uh, and it has never been revisited and they have never tried to update the protocol. It is quite possible that airdrop lives in the same territory. That's interesting, because as we were just discussing this, of course, one of the nice nice parts about the solution that's used with AirDrop contact sharing is it's only active on the devices broadcasting, right? Everything else can basically be entirely passive and is required to expend virtually no CPU cycles. So if you get into a thing where there's even a small amount of complex math needs to happen, then you get into an interesting set of side things where like, you could walk to a conference and then within that conference start kind of just spamming various PSI challenges or whatever it would be such that like all the iPhones in this space started trying to compute the thing that you were asking them to compute and over time, like denial of service by running people's batteries down or whatever. Um, and I think that kind of, the reducing the amount of compute required for third party operations that is to say when you're not initiating the action seems to be a common theme between this and what you were just describing around iMessage right because again picking keys based on performance is kind of important when you can push messages to anyone and kind of I'm when you send me a message I'm not opting in to my machine uh, spending a certain number of cycles and a certain amount of battery dealing with whatever math you sent my way um, yeah I mean I think you make a very good point with airdrop uh, with iMessage, I would suspect that the encryption is not the, uh, like, if I'm looking to perform a denial of service of battery attack, which is an interesting abstract concept for an iMessage, but like, I would suspect that the vast majority of battery consumption there is uh, reception of the actual data payload. Like, I can just send large files to you, and that's going, if you're on cellular, that's going to burn a lot of power. Yeah, that uh, makes sense. So I'm is this supposed to be basically uh kind of like building rainbow tables a la a la Wi-Fi like in the early two thousands? Is this how the attack works? Like with no having known hashes or I'm completely off here. I actually have not read into the paper that you share with us, Robert. So that's what I'm asking. Uh so I you know, uh, on all these things I'll always uh defer to Paul to keep me honest. Um my initial thought too was, oh, you know, okay, this is about people building rainbow tables, and uh, I think you could do that, especially for telephone numbers, because um, you could do that super, yeah, I mean, super trivially. Names 
Probably not. Telephone number seems to be something uh, much more finite. Uh, I mean, they're still big because you have hundreds of millions of potential options. But, you know, I mean, if you only want to... Probably you know the country that you're targeting, so you, sure. you can reduce the... Or even the state or the area, so you could probably reduce the number to... Oh, yeah, the... the significant the, subset. The space is very narrow. Um, it's narrow enough that actually the rainbow table conversation I don't think matters that much. Certainly, you could pre-compute these things to like dis distribute pre-computed uh, rainbow tables for numbers and maybe combinations of I don't know the top top hundreds of thousands of combinations of um, names in a given country, right? To make it really fast. But the the main point is that because the because the space is so narrow with both names and uh, telephone numbers particularly, even bruting them or just brute forcing them to come out with something that makes sense um, wouldn't, wouldn't really be computationally expensive. Yeah, I mean, the, the state space of phone numbers, as you described, is, is very low. Uh, and SHA is very fast. So just iterating over like the entire set of US po like possible US phone numbers is probably the work of like two seconds on a modern computer. And if you are doing it with hardware acceleration or if you're doing it with dedicated ASICs, it's the work of milliseconds to generate like 10 to the 10th or more. It's so not uh, even worth messing about with a rainbow table then. Not really. Um, rainbow tables might be more interesting on, a, uh, on the email side, right? So you also identify via emails and there are certainly large archives of emails that have leaked in various... Uh, uh, PII breaches in the past, so you could imagine doing a rainbow table across like you know 13, 14 billion email addresses. Thing about that, of course, is again, turns out 14 billion hashes really don't take that long. So in general, rainbow tables don't end up being a thing that matters uh, for this type of hashing. So to answer what I think was the 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 nut buried in the fruit there. Um, no, you can't solve this with salting. Uh, no, a salt would not help you. It's too fast. Um, you, you need to have something that actually takes serious CPU time if you're going to do that. Interesting. Um, so I, I don't think there is an easy solution to this then. Like on, on one of the things that you mentioned that I thought was interesting is Apple, you know, for other reasons, you, you listen to when they talk about new processors that release or the, the recent migration from Intel to uh, Apple Silicon, they're very, very, very conscious about power consumption. So I wonder if, if some of these cryptographic decisions actually are because of like they want to reduce the overall consumption. Um, you you also mentioned an interesting point, Paul, regarding you know probably the the five G or the four G uh, uh, processing you know receiving and processing of the actual payload eats a lot more battery than the actual encryption decryption. But at the same time, I wonder like if you do this enough or how often you're going to do it, whether or not it actually played a part. I, I doubt it, but I I always think that given how conscious they are and how many times they mention in their general tech conversations you know how how security gets affected by power consumption on a cellular phone uh or cellular os uh, more, more than anything else it, 
it opens a, a set of other questions that, you know, for us, you know, our world is really difficult if we actually also take into account like power consumption, like it probably is not a, an instant decision to come up with which algorithms you use, which ones you don't, which ones are more effective, you know, how, how much, when you actually own everything uh, all the way down to the silicon, you can actually make decisions like, hey, in the, maybe in the next version, we can actually do have some hardware uh, implementation of this that actually is going to allow us to like get away with it. But at the same time, like it's, it opens the question of how, how many of these decisions actually were made because of power consumption. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like battery life has been a major concern for smartphones since the day they were invented. Uh, and it, in a lot of ways, it has only gotten better in the cases where the phones have gotten bigger. Like in general, the amount of battery we want to use has has somewhat increased alongside. We're more willing to have our phones get warm. We have ex higher expectations for GPUs. GPUs and phones all throttle these days. Like even even Apple's devices will throttle when you run them really hard for a long period of time. So like they are willing to consume more power than the heat dissipation of the form factor allows. So yeah, like. Apple cares, and other other manufacturers, of course, as well, care extraordinarily deeply about that power consumption. Like, and as you said, that they put things in hardware, like they hoist cryptographic algorithms where they can. They hoist various ML things into hardware, uh, and then in software layer, they they do a lot of um, coalescing. Right, like it turns out that it's extremely useful to be able to wake up the processor only sometimes to do that the, the heavy lifting, and if you can. Uh, you can put something on kind of a fuzzy timer and then the operating system can then coalesce all that oper those operations into the same window so that instead of waking up the processor 50 times over the course of a second and a half, you wake up the processor twice. Um, so there's all sorts of like hyper-optimization that, that goes at those levels. And there's a lot of, there's a, probably a topic for another podcast, what sort of interesting security trade-offs end up happening in a world where like, you're effectively ceding granular control of execution to uh, like, or even more, I shouldn't say granular control of execution, but you, you are ceding even more of the way scheduling of processes works to the underlying operating system than you normally do. And like that comes with consequences. Yeah. I, whenever I actually think about technology in general, I, I actually do think that right, right now, the, the thing that is holding us the most is battery technology. If you think about some of these like um, augmented reality things and, and a few other things, like processor-wise, we could probably get away. Like we still have to get a little bit better when it comes to general like uh, a visual like technology. But like the one thing that is uh, not allowing us to continue to expand and potentially even make our cell phones like our computers are um, battery life. Um, the M1 going from intel with like nine hours to like 18 like almost doubling it it's, it's a significant improvement but i don't think they actually make a lot of improvement in the batteries themselves they make a lot of improvement in the processors uh, so it, it goes to tell that you know it's still like it's lagging behind so much so I, i'm just waiting for the next revolution in battery life so i can actually have a device that i don't have to plug in for like a week like i would potentially do with um i don't know with, with something else right but uh, moving along, and, and I actually think that this is an interesting topic. I 
brought it up myself, so I'm kind of like asking the question to myself to some point, but I actually wanted to talk to you guys because it has affected me in the past. Uh, zero, you know, zero knowledge proof. Um, DARPA actually recently came out with uh, some interesting paper about uh, vulnerability disclosure uh, and using zero knowledge proof. I don't, know, I don't know if you guys actually took the time to so, read the, the little note or not, but... Uh, so this is the CIV program, correct? This is a seed problem. You are hundred percent correct. So, what is your? So, so I, I will uh, disclose before you begin your summary that uh, that one of the prime contractors that won the DARPA bid was one of the members of my team when I worked at Trail of Bits. Uh, so, I have a significant amount of exposure to the, the very beginning of the Civ project. The reason why this is actually interesting to me is not because of vulnerability disclosure. I thought that the topic was interesting, but I actually wanted to bring it up for another reason. I'll, I'll share with you guys. So in the identity world, um, I used to do security. My previous job was um, highly related to identity. Uh, there, there are some interesting problems where um, you have, you know, not everything in the world is SAML or OAuth or you know some modern, some sort of modern uh, identity provider authentication protocol. A lot of the times, you still want to be able to provide authentication for you know, the good old username and password. Uh, things, which means that you have to retain the username and password for those users, and then you have to send it back to either an Active Directory, another application, etc. But that comes with consequences. That means that you trust in your identity provider with your credentials, and you're also trusting that whenever they send those credentials to, it's actually going to be something trusted. Uh, a lot of the times, uh, people actually use this to you know, if you want to offload authentication to something like Active Directory, Active Directory for the most part, um, and a lot of versions that actually don't support some sort of like an IDP uh, way of using, you know, like authenticating with SAML or OAuth, and you have to resource to, you know, connecting it back to your old IDP and, and actually using it. And it has not been done yet, but the use of zero proof knowledge, um, no, sorry, zero knowledge proof um, into into this problem, it seems something that I have not seen the identity world abuse or use by any means, but it was, I feel that it will be uh, relatively easy to, to sort of have two systems that say, hey, like here's my username and password and I'm sending you this proof. And the other one is saying, yeah, I, I can attest that you know it, so I'm gonna allow you in because I, I can literally, you, you prove with me that you have these valid credentials um, without actually sending the, the credentials and avoiding somebody to be able to exploit the plugin in the middle or or without actually having to trust it or without the user actually having to leak the credentials outside of the AD for whatever reason on-prem, right? So when I, when I hear about these um, zero knowledge proof and vulnerability disclosure, I'm like, okay, very interesting. I completely see the use case here, but I also beg the question why I haven't seen any other useful research into actually applying it to the identity world, which you will think DARPA potentially could actually be very interested in uh, further securing uh, identities between modern and a little bit more old school. Interesting. Yeah, so like in general, when I think of how I would want to do this, like as you described, like zero knowledge proofs are not actually the first thing in the toolbox that I would reach for. Um, there exists this concept called authenticated key exchange, uh, and specifically password-based authenticated key exchange, so PAKES. 
Uh, and there's a concept called an augmented pake inside of that. And then there's all sorts of other things like balanced pakes and things of that nature. But like augmented pakes uh, allow you to use what's called an oblivious pseudorandom function, an OPRF, such that the server doesn't know the password. And yet the end result is an agreement that yes, they should be allowed in anyway. Um, so in terms of the way you're describing it, you can build a system like that uh, that does not require a full zero knowledge implementation, uh, which is much more complex than a than an authenticated key exchange. Um, so you, what you're telling me, Paul, is that uh, the identity world needs a lot more crypto experts uh, in their in their engineering. Uh, maybe they do. I mean, there's there's pakes have been around for quite some time. And in fact, uh, WPA three actually has a pake inside as an option uh, called Dragonfly, which has its own set of problems. Um, but like, there's also spake one and two, and uh, opake is the uh, is an augmented pake that's currently going undergoing standardization. So I think effectively you're just a tiny bit ahead of the curve in terms of like within the next few years. I think we're going to start seeing significant uptake of these technologies in exactly the places you're talking about. Um, and when that happens, well, it's probably going to be good. We're also going to get some really fun crypto bugs out of it. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, like you could you could you could clearly see the benefits, right? From an authentication perspective, if you're able to, you know, prove that you actually are who you are without actually uh, sort of giving away your secrets, um, even if it's something from from the, the benefit here is it, it, it you don't change anything from the user perspective. They still sort of own their username and password. Um, potentially, you can get away. I assume, but like better way of storing it uh, on the server side. Uh, that will potentially limit, you know, all of the never-ending uh, username and password disclosures that we see out of hacks, etc., uh, or or phishing attempts uh, that could potentially be because you know, like you will you wouldn't potentially be sending the credentials or I don't know. I, I guess you know from a social engineering perspective, as long as you can put a username and password fake website, you're gonna still uh, be able to trick people. But but from us uh, actually, you know. Uh, exchange perspective, even if it's, it's on the on the back on the back end side, I, I I've seen so many things done in so many horrible ways uh, for so many years. Uh, both you know when I was a consultant and and when I was working in in the identity world, that it just bugs my mind how how we haven't like come up with solutions with what you said or with uh, a little bit more of like you know zero zero knowledge proofs uh, in order to avoid this 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 exchange of this unnecessary exchange of credentials when when do you actually could potentially do it in another way? Yeah, potentially so. I, I I would be remiss if I didn't mention that of course I think that the general solution to this problem is FIDO2 and WebAuthn. Uh <laughs> yes, but remember, remember that I stated very early in the conversation <laughs> that a lot of these things are on-prem, old school services that you even have to be able to plug in just to be able to communicate uh, with them anyways. Uh, the problem is that by introducing a plugin, you introduce in yet another point where those credentials are going to be transmitted. They're probably going to be, they will have to be either in memory or uh, on the clear. So like the more that you can actually prevent that, like it's uh, the, the better. Talking about things breaking uh, as we move along the conversation, the, I, I heard you rant, Paul, for like two or three days about some, some software rate recovery. <laughs> 
thingy that uh, that your machines were going on. Uh, do you want to share some sure. some of your run with us? Sure, I'll, I'll keep this one short, and hopefully, this does not become a podcast tradition that Paul has one thing he's upset about every single time we talk about stuff. Oh, it totally already <laughs> has become one of a tradition. Uh, so I run a, a Linux server here at home. Uh, it has a RAID five uh, within it, software RAID five uh, using L, uh, like LVM. And I'm sorry, not LVM and MDADM. When you build a software RAID 5, you can choose two ways to build it. You can directly address the block device like slash dev slash SDA, or you can address a partition on that device like slash dev slash SDA1. It is generally considered best practice to just use a partition. This is not best practice I was necessarily aware of until a few days ago, but for all of those currently looking at me and those who might listen, that's the best practice. Uh, the reason why that's the best practice is that it turns out that there's some weird edge cases in the MBR and GPT partition specs, wherein it is permissible for devices that like look at those partition maps to restore them if they don't believe that they're quite what they should be. Like, because sometimes you write these things to the beginning, sometimes you write to the end, sometimes you write clones of the data at the beginning and the end, just in case you overwrote it. It turns out there's a subset of motherboards whose UEFI BIOSes will read the partition map off a drive, look on the beginning and end and go, oh, that's not quite right. I'll fix that for you. Now, if this is not a problem in a normal partition map. It is a problem if you've chosen to make your RAID the entirety of the block device, because of course you don't want a partition map. You have a strong expectation that the operating system does not see one. So when I expanded my RAID recently, I had it went from four drives to six drives, and I stayed RAID six because, or sorry, I stayed RAID five because I, I want to live dangerously. Uh, I want to lose this data apparently. Uh, everything reshaped took about three days um, to do this, and everything was working just fine. And then, because of course I'm a responsible security professional, my automated systems that detected a kernel update rebooted at about 4 a.m. one morning, and I no longer had a RAID. So I started looking into it at that point, not knowing any of what I've just described to you. And what I had was a six drive RAID array of which four drives were perfectly fine and were showing me all the data they should. And two of the drives said, we have an MBR, a master boot record, that shows one partition. Fortunately, the way Linux booted this up, it just didn't mount anything. So I was reasonably confident the data was there. But I did end up going on an adventure for many hours uh, and quite a few profanity-laden texts to Rob and Matthias uh, to try and figure out exactly what was going on. Uh, and in the end, I discovered what I've already described. Uh, and it turns out that there's a bunch of very interesting MDADM commands, uh, including one. I know I'm telling you to create a new RAID array, but I want you to do it at this data offset. And I want you to do it with this ordering of the drives. And I want you to do it with this block size. And I want you to think to, to just assume it's entirely clean. Like, don't rewrite anything except the initial super block records. And after that, don't touch it, which is a crazy flag when you think about it. That's basically asserting that like everything's totally fine. All the parity bits are set properly. All the data is exactly where you expect it to be. 
it's just those first few bytes at the beginning, which like like literally less than four kilobytes that at the very beginning of the drive. Uh, those are wrong, and I'll fix those. But everything else, just don't touch it. So I ran this command, but first I had to learn how to do overlay file systems and other stuff, uh, which again, a very impressive Linux feature. I was able to create an overlay file system on top of my existing file systems so that I could build fake RAID arrays that only wrote their deltas to overlay files on a drive still happening. So I was able to experiment with various permutations and setups to determine whether or not I was able like, does this command work? Can I mount the drive? No, okay, well, what, what do I need to do? Um, so between that ability to experiment and binary grepping the raw block devices, looking for specific magic key codes so that I could determine file offsets, uh, I was I was able to determine all the relevant numbers that I needed to do and restore the drive. At which point I said, okay, let me reboot. And it erased it again. Now, I did expect that to happen, but I wanted to confirm that it was really the problem. So what I, uh, after that, there, there's a, uh, I forget the name of the, the, the program, but effectively there's something that just zaps GPT and MBR records. Uh, and so... I restored the RAID, zapped the GPT and MDR records, which sit outside of the RAID array uh, because they sit in special zones, uh, at which point everything was fine and I was able to reboot again. Uh, but that was uh, quite a saga of losing. I was very worried I was losing somewhere on, on the order of 25 terabytes of data. So my, my short recommendation here is just, just spend a couple hundred bucks, get a hardware RAID array, and forget about this nightmare. I mean, you're obviously not wrong. Uh, I feel like this somehow has made me a better person, but I'm sure that's untrue. No, no, this is probably you just you you wasted about four days of like unnecessary technical knowledge that you probably never gonna use again. Yeah, I mean, at the end of this whole thing, I definitely had that feeling of that old Far Side cartoon with the teacher, may I be excused, my brain is full. Yeah, and, and it kind of feels that you went on a, like a, a gentle slash arch Linux uh, guy, you know, <laughs> where like you need to know how everything, literally everything works. I, I'll, I'll accept it for the, you know, for the people that are listening and they actually know me, like I was one of them. But you get to a point in life where that, when you accept that there's some knowledge that you're happy with not understanding exactly to the, you know, last bit how it works it just works and it makes you happy and allows you to do your work uh, i think probably again a hardware rate setup might actually be not so expensive and probably it's going to save you multiple hours I, I would actually go to say that at your uh at your rate at your hourly rate probably you actually already spend more money trying to fix this than what the actual hardware rate costs. unquestionably true um, but on the on the bright side, I know a whole lot about how RAID five parity striping works now. <laughs> because you clearly are going to open it up a forensics a recovery uh, consulting company, and that's going to be your job. That's right. Know. And now I know how to binary grep across block devices. That's that's probably a relevant skill in the future, right? Right? Oh wait, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> you can you can do that uh, with your uh, new uh, M one map because it has you, you can actually do RAID, right? No, <laughs> but... <laughs>